1938, the Western powers allowed Nazi Germany to annex the border regions of Czechoslovakia and a few months later dismember the rest of that country. Some people have said that this model is replaying itself somewhat farther east. That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome back to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel and, at one time anyway, instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. This series of podcasts introduces enduring lessons of war, not so much for those who study war as a profession, but for anyone who wants to fulfill their role as informed citizens in our country's deliberations about war and peace, and particularly now when the world is facing war again. I remember seeing a cartoon once where a character said that it wasn't worthwhile to study for his history class. He said that all we learn from history is that no one learns from history, so why bother? The problem, as I have said before in these podcasts, is that we move forward with blinders. We cannot see where we're going. We can only look through mirrors to see where we have been, and from that to infer where we might be going. And that is kind of my approach to these podcasts. So now for a little history. I'll begin with some background on why some people thought that allowing Germany to occupy the Sudetenland of Czechoslovakia in 1938 was a good idea. Czechoslovakia came into being as a country in 1920. Like other countries created by the Western Allies at the end of World War I, its borders were somewhat arbitrary and included the former Kingdom of Bohemia, the Margravate of Moravia, the Duchy of Silesia, and parts of the Duchy of Austria, the Kingdom of Hungary, and the Kingdom of Galicia. It included ethnic and linguistic Germans, Czechs, Slovakians, Hungarians, Poles, and Ukrainians. The Sudeten mountain region of Bohemia, or the current Czech Republic, runs along the border between the Czech Republic and Germany. From the Middle Ages to the end of World War II, the population of that region was 90% German. There was also German majority populations inside of the Czech border with Austria and a large German population deeper within the Czech or Bohemian areas of the new Czechoslovakia. Except for the German and Hungarian populations, the only thing that these Czech, Slovak, Polish, and Ukrainian peoples had in common was the desire to be free of Austrian and Hungarian rule. It should come as no surprise, therefore, that there was significant discrimination by the dominant Czech and Slovaks against the German and Hungarian populations. An interesting point about this is that the American ambassador sent by Woodrow Wilson to report on the division of Austria-Hungary recommended consistent with the self-determination clause of Wilson's 14 points, that the ethnic German territory should remain united with Austria. However, the U.S. delegation to the Paris peace talks ignored that recommendation. Throughout the 1920s, this discrimination was fairly low level, probably influenced by the economic growth enabled by industrial economic prosperity. Now, this disappeared with the global economic collapse in 1929, it hit the industrial and mining areas that had majority German populations especially hard. Discrimination increased and often led to acts of individual and organized violence. British and French negotiators tried to come up with a solution. To avoid the outright loss of the German-speaking territory, the government in Prague agreed to almost all demands by the German population to include complete political autonomy. 
Now, that wasn't enough for Hitler in Germany. Not only did he want to unite all ethnic German areas, his war aims also required access to the industry and raw materials that the Sudeten mountain region in Czechoslovakia offered. The annexation of Austria to Germany earlier that year strengthened Hitler's arguments for annexing the Sudeten region since it had been part of Austria until 1920. And so, given the real ethnic violence and the threats of military action by Germany, the Western powers acquiesced and told Prague to submit. Losing this territory stripped Czechoslovakia of critical industry and mineral resources. Additionally, it completely removed the mountainous barrier Czechoslovakia needed to mount any sort of adequate defense against the German attack. The German population in Czechoslovakia was not alone in its grievances against Prague. Slovakia was also calling for independence, and there were difficulties with the Hungarian and Polish populations. As German troops moved into the border regions, Polish troops moved into the ethnic Polish part of Czechoslovakia. The next month, Hungarian troops attacked, conquering the ethnic Hungarian areas near the border of Hungary. A few months later, Slovakia declared its independence, and Hungary then occupied the Ukrainian parts of the newly independent Slovakia. The Prague government feared that this was only the beginning of a larger offensive by Hungary. The government was then pressured to allow German troops to occupy what was left of Czech territory, as it was said at that time, to protect them. The West did nothing. Now write this down. It summarizes what we just heard, but it's still somewhat confusing. Country A was recently formed from part of Country B. Country A practices violent discrimination against those persons of Country B who now live within the borders of Country A. Claiming to protect the discriminated population, Country B, or its successor country, invades and occupies the portion of Country A where the ethnic population of Country B is dominant. The West does nothing. A short time later, Country B occupies the rest of the Country A, allegedly to protect the population against further violence. Got that? After World War II, Czechoslovakia was re-established, minus the ethnic Ukrainian part, which was grabbed by the Soviet Union. The Czechs resumed their discrimination against the ethnic German population and conducted a very thorough ethnic cleansing of all German peoples throughout the country, killing thousands and forcing the rest to be refugees. I guess they had some justification, but all parties that ever engaged in ethnic cleansing claimed justification for doing that. Anyway, in 1968, 30 years after the West stood by as Germany invaded Czechoslovakia, the communist government in Prague decided to open up their government a bit. They began to allow free speech, free political association, freedom of travel, and decentralized government. They called it socialism with a human face. Moscow called it fascism, and the Soviet army invaded. Just as they had done 30 years before, the West did nothing. But this podcast isn't about Czechoslovakia. In the fall of 2014, following the Russian occupation of Crimea, Moscow instigated an uprising among the elements of the ethnic population in eastern Ukraine, known as the Donbass, and particularly the administrative districts of Luhansk and Donetsk. Why? Russia claimed, and continues to claim, that there is serious discrimination against the Russian-speaking population in that area, even alleging genocide with claims of mass graves. 
This is part and parcel of larger claims against Ukraine, mostly using the typical Soviet boogeyman of claiming that their opponents are fascists and neo-Nazis. This is nothing new. The Soviets always portrayed things as either patriotic socialism or neo-Nazi fascism. The same charges were leveled against every NATO country unless, at that moment, that government was doing something to accommodate or prop up Moscow. The current Russian government is just using the same playbook, claiming fascism in others to justify its own fascist behavior. So then, is there something more than spurious claims behind Russia's push against Ukraine? The military-industrial complex of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was the second largest after the Russian Soviet Federal Republic. At that time, the defense industry in Ukraine employed 2.7 million people, and the former Soviet space program provided jobs for 200,000 Ukrainians. One-third of Soviet weapons production was located in Ukraine. The importance of the defense industry continued after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Ukraine is a major producer of military equipment, including leading-edge tanks, armored personnel carriers, state-of-the-art anti-tank guided missiles, military transport aircraft, optical equipment, and all components necessary for surface-to-air missile complexes. In 2014, Ukraine was the fourth-largest arms exporter in the world, and Russia was its biggest customer. In that year, Russian civil and military orders from Ukrainian firms amounted to about $15 billion, making up 8.2% of Ukraine's GDP. Now, that dropped considerably after the invasions of 2014, but as of last year, 20% of Ukraine's military exports still went to Russia. Russian military hardware produced in Ukraine includes eight different combat and transport aircraft. Further, the Russian BE-200 amphibious aircraft, the Yak-130 combat training aircraft, and the huge AN-124 Russian heavy transport aircraft all use engines manufactured in Ukraine. Ukraine also produces the engines for Russian strategic cruise missiles, aircraft tactical missiles, and naval anti-ship missiles. Additionally, Ukraine produces space-capable rockets, satellites, and space research equipment for its own use and export to other countries. Since 2014, Ukraine refocused on its own needs, as you might expect, rather than exporting, thereby dropping to be only the 12th largest arms exporter. That is a major economic consideration for Russia, especially considering that those arms exports directly compete with Russian arms exports among Russia's key customers. But there's more. Although arms exports are a major source of revenue for Russia, it comes in a distant second to energy, and most of the gas pipelines to Europe go through Ukraine. In fact, although Ukraine produces some oil and gas, it gets most of its energy revenue from transit fees along the Russian gas pipelines. Estimated Ukrainian revenues amount to about $2 billion a year. Not only is that a significant cost for Russia, but should Ukraine interrupt those pipelines, the economic effect on Russia would be catastrophic. So, since 2014, Russia has complained that military intervention is necessary to protect a Russian-speaking minority within a neighboring country. A country that also happens to have major industrial weapons manufacturing and natural resources which the Russian Federation relied upon during the Soviet era. Saying that was taking action to protect that Russian minority... Russia invaded Crimea and supported armed ethnic conflict in eastern Ukraine. Oh, 
And by the way, in so doing, Russia just happened to have acquired a major naval base and Ukrainian ships in the process. The West did nothing other than some economic sanctions that seemed to have had little effect. What lesson did Vladimir Putin learn from this? What lesson did Hitler learn from Western acquiescence to his actions in Czechoslovakia? This past week, Russia upped the game by overtly moving military forces into the areas of ethnic violence, ethnic violence it had instigated seven years ago, and announced the separation of that area from Ukraine. And then, this morning, a major attack by Russian forces. And the West has responded with more economic sanctions, despite the evidence of the last half dozen years that such sanctions are ineffective. It is said that a lesson is not learned until it brings about a change in behavior. The better the lesson, the more permanent the change in behavior. How well have we learned the lessons of 1938, or 1968, or 2014? In the next episode, I'll start to address the elements of national power as part of an integrated strategy. That will include the real effects of sanctions as a tool of national power, or how effective economic warfare can be in isolation from the other elements. Next time, on the ancient art of modern warfare.